From the Film Society Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week we bring you in-depth conversations with today's leading filmmakers. On today's episode, we're sharing a conversation with director Ira Sachs, actor Greg Kinnear, and actress Jennifer Ely, who joined us to talk about their new film, Little Men, which is opening here at the Film Society on August 5th. After that, you'll hear from visionary director Paul Greengrass, whose latest film, Jason Bourne, is now in theaters. Much like Sachs's previous film, Love is Strange, New York City serves as the backdrop for a tender relationship story, this time focusing on the life-defining friendship of two teens caught in the middle of a familial tumult. When his grandfather dies, 13-year-old Jake moves with his family from Manhattan back into his father's old Brooklyn home, where he meets Tony, whose mother Leonor runs a dress shop downstairs. When Jake's parents ask Leonor to sign another more expensive lease for the store, a feud begins between the adults. The friendship forged between Jake and Tony, observed with Sax's usual humanism and insight, forms the heart of the film, and ultimately crafts a timely, sophisticated story of displacement and class. Ira Sachs, Greg Kinnear, and Jennifer Ely joined us last week to discuss Little Men at one of our free talks, which are sponsored by HBO. The evening was moderated by Nigel Smith of The Guardian. Let's go now to their conversation. Hi, everybody. So, Ira Sachs, first I, I want to say congratulations. You're uh, in the throes of experiencing a mid-career retrospective at MoMA. I think that kicked off on Friday with your first film, correct? I thought you were going to say a midlife crisis. Midlife crisis. Maybe that, too. Maybe that, too. Uh, uh, yes, there's a retrospective uh, that started last Friday of, 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 of my films, and um, it's really great to have an opportunity to see them in context with each other and to and to sort of appreciate for a moment the, the struggle that went into s- sustaining a career as a filmmaker, which is always challenging, and so it's been a nice thing. Yeah. With that in mind, where do you think this film fits into your New York oeuvre? Um, well, I've, I've made three films in the last five years that are set in New York, uh, starting with Keep the Lights On, and then Love is Strange, and, and now Little Men. Um, they are very connected and they are very different, I, I would say. I, I think um, the first film, Keep the Lights On, was about two men in their 20s in the city. Uh, Love is Strange with John Lithgow and Alfred Molina was about two men in their 60s and 70s. And then this film is a, centers around two boys. But like in all the films, um, I think it's, it's the whole kind of family. And family to me means both a nuclear family as well as a communal family that becomes the subject of the story. And I guess that maybe that's how I live in New York and feel that's part of the New York I know. Mm-hmm. Now who here has seen his last film, Love is Strange? Could I get a show of hands? All right, so almost everyone in the room, it's a masterwork, a beautiful, beautiful film. Also premiered at Sundance as this film did. Um, now that film, you know, it features much older protagonists than the two young boys that largely make up the narrative of this picture. But in that film, the two men lose their home early in the picture and that sets off the series of events that unfolds over the course of the film. This film um, is about gentrification um, in a much more um, not so subtle way. What is it about that theme that, that keeps you coming back? To me, the theme really is, is home more than gentrification per se. That's yeah. a modern word for 
um, something that is, that's been going on forever, which is how do people hold on to what they have and how do they keep their families or, or themselves safe? And what do they do when they're confronted with economic problems in their own lives? So I think that's what's really in common. I, I think um, for me, each of these stories relates to some very specific um, experience or or that I've observed or that I've heard about. In this case, it's actually based on a story um, that my that I heard from my co-writer, Mauricio Zacharias, who lives in Rio, uh, or is from Rio. He lives here in New York. But his family was involved with a rent uh, struggle. They owned a shop in Rio. Um, they were trying to get rid of a, a tenant who had stopped paying rent. And this went on for several years. Um, when I heard the story, I kept thinking there's two sides of this story. And in most cases around economics, there's always two sides. And so that became the kind of crux of the film, Little Men. Yeah. Now, how did Jennifer and, um, and Greg come onto the project? Was it a case of well, descriptors coming your say, way, or did they I, come to you? Um, I went to them, definitely, based on, on, on their work. And, and really a kind of natural affinity I felt for them, initially on screen, because I didn't know either of them, mm -hmm. but as people, which for me is such a big part of who you cast. I felt a familiarity, uh, an intimacy with, with, with these two people in the world that I felt reminded me of people I know. I'm glad to say that's still true, and I feel very close to them in the making of this film. Um, they're also, I will say, both two of the most natural actors, and for me, that is really a place where I feel like we can really discover something. Mm -hmm. About the natural approach, I mean, the, the performances you elicit from all your actors in all your films are incredibly naturalistic. Um, you credit them for being natural actors. How, how do you know that an actor is inherently that way before they sign on the dotted well, line. Well, luckily they have a lot of work you can watch well, yeah. on, on, in, in, in lots of different forms. Um, it's also a, a process that, that they trusted me in. I'm, I don't rehearse with my actors before we start working. Uh, we talk about the script and, and they spent a little time with each other and with the kids in the film. Um, but we don't um, really, I don't want things to be discussed in advance of the shooting because then you start performing what you've discussed. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of the opposite of theatrical acting, uh, which is always about something that you can repeat and repeat and repeat. Film, you want the opportunity to capture something that will only happen once. Yeah. The two of you, what chiefly appealed to you about the project? Was it the themes of Film Explorers? Was it the chance to work with Ira? Were you both familiar with his work? Uh, I, when I read the script, um, I. I just had a feeling it was unlike, I hadn't ever really read a script like it before. It was, uh, it was flawless and um, uh, just had a resonance um, and was so, it's so unlike its themes and the sort of minimalist, not minimal, it just, the, the, how, how it looks at um, the, the debt, how it has these, it has detonations. It's not an action film, but it has these huge emotional detonations. Mm -hmm. But you can only, you only notice them because of the intimacy that um, is created with the characters. You feel like you know these people and that you feel that it matter these things, how they matter to them. Yeah. And that's, um, I think it's really unusual in, certainly in an American script, it's much more of a European mm -hmm. 
um, sensibility. So I, it, I don't know. It really just, I just thought it was, I thought it was perfect. And I just immediately called my agent and said, yes, I want to do it. And she said, well, I'll set up a talk with Ira and then you can, I said, why do I need to talk to him? Do you think I'm going to find out something and not want to do it? And she said, no, no, I don't mean that. And I said, then I don't need to talk to him. I just want to do it. So. Yeah, I, I had uh, I had seen uh, uh, some of Ira's films, and of uh, of course the last one, uh, Love Is Strange. I was absolutely uh, stunned by how uh, beautiful that film was, and how uh, he had captured so so much uh, honesty in it. And uh, it was just a, a gorgeous little movie. And I, uh, I I also you know responded to the script, um, and I said this earlier today. I I. I did think it was a really good script, but I didn't realize like the little nuance and the little, uh, only after I saw it as a final movie uh, that he had completed it, had I realized some of the things that he had built within it that played so nicely and, and really um, captured uh, five different stories from each of these people. Uh, you know, of course, I had a sense of that with the script, but. Um, it, it came so alive, and a lot of that is the finding of these two boys, which he he did, and and discovered these uh, these these two kids who are unbelievable. They're just great in the movie. It's such a wonderful thing. It it is such a truly independent film because, you know, uh, it is all it is all told as as collaborative as a process as it is. It is all told through Ira. There is nobody above him who is instructing him or nudging him or you know, that he has no pressure from the outside, right? Mm -hmm. It's you. And I a think lot of pressure from the inside. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's probably true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, I think that makes that, that singularity of a point of view, ultimately, although using a big palette. Yeah. Um, but again, all of everything on the palette has been chosen by, by Ira. I think the thing about, I've, I've thought about this lately, um, partially because I'm, I'm beginning to, to put my toe into television and I think the thing that independent film when it's truly independent allows is for you to work by instinct and it's sort of the same thing that if you're a painter or a poet that somehow your instincts are really valued and precious and preserved and I think as soon as you have a more corporate structure of creativity something else takes place um, but I think there is something special about that. And, and I think it can create a more um, specific way of telling a story. Yeah. Now, Jennifer, you brought up the, the intimacy of the script. I want to know how you went about fostering the, uh, the intimacy on set, given the fact that it's an independent film. I'm guessing you probably had, what, three weeks to shoot the whole thing? We had five weeks. Five weeks. Okay, that's a lot for an independent movie. Um, I'm lying, it was two weeks. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but I, I, I wholly believed you all as a family unit, and how did you go about making that um, believable for the viewer? I don't know. It just didn't seem there was anything in the way of it. Yeah. yeah. I, I just. Is it Ira's approach though? Yes, like, I think yeah. So. What, 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 what is it specifically about his approach that allows that to come so easily? I don't know. I, you know, I think um, the the casting of it w certainly helps that. Yeah. Um, there's nobody who's fighting, you know, who's working against what is, I think, inherently there on the page in terms of the casting. And, and also, I would say uh, the, the place, the, the sense of place where we were. I mean, we were 
smack dab in the very place where the story was being told in Brooklyn. And I mean, I think we had moved, there were some misrepresentations <laughs> in our actual location, but mm -hmm. you, in that hot August uh, month last year, uh, you had a real sense that, um, or I think I felt like we were, we had a sense of, of, uh, of being in the same environment with which mm -hmm. the story was, was being told. Mm -hmm. So uh, that certainly helped. But, um, but I also think Jennifer's right that it was more just nothing in the way. But it's interesting to me because I, I'm sort of looking at the two of you and, and I really know the history of that family and yet there were very few clues that you in a way were given. The script doesn't like lay out much of what came before and where you are and your jobs, but we, and I think, I do think that script partially to give the shape to things, but I also think performance. I mean, I think you, you came into this with, with, um, with depth in terms of your relationship to these characters. I think though that, cause I don't know, did you, cause we sat, and I, I know you do this, I think with most of your actors, cause I, you say you don't rehearse and you don't, but we did have a meeting where we went through every single scene yeah. of hers, you and I reading them. Yeah. And you were very specific about that, you know, there were many clues in that about who she was and what her point of view of the world was. Did you have that as well? Did you sit, did you guys read in through Atlanta. the script together yeah. in Atlanta? And so if you do that with every single actor, then everybody's does have a sort of, it's helped solidify the point of view of each character. I guess it is a form of rehearsal, you're yeah. right. It's just not, um, it's just not working with the other actors so that there isn't this kind of decisions made among the group of people, but they're very private yes, to you. Yes, but it makes it more dynamic because it, they're, the edges aren't smoothed over by, yeah. you know, all saying, oh, we're all going to do this. Yes. It's just everybody comes in with their point of view and a sense of self that the other actors aren't necessarily aware of. And Ira, when I interviewed with you last week, um, you told me that you don't let your actors go off script. Well, I mean, I'm not... I'm not a it's true <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a dictator I believe in economy yeah. uh, in the f in the f in film and in art in general and that there be a sense of like what is necessary and what's not and often I find if actors go off too far one way or the other they start they start improvising <laughs> they start uh, they start adding words because they have something else going on which is an anxiety to perform and I really feel often um, the words do the work for them. That said, uh, generally in my films, I would say 10% to 15% are improvised and they're very specific scenes. Mm -hmm. In this film, you, you saw in the clip a bit of the acting class that um, the boys are in together. That is a fully improvised scene. We brought in a lot of kids who are acting students from Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, and they were part of that scene. And we, we just did an acting class with a real acting teacher for four or five hours we, we recorded that as if it was documentary and some bits of it become part of the film. What that does is it seeps into the rest of the film. So the more scripted stuff feels more authentic because it's influenced by like the, 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 the stuff that you get from these open, more open scenes. Well, let's see your words at work in the first clip from the film. I haven't viewed the clip, so I'm not sure what we're gonna be watching, but it occurs in the first third of the film, I'm told. Okay. I lied. That, that was all scripted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whoops. The one scene in the film is not scripted. And then, 
It's well, the first one we show. I gave I gave the right intro. You, you gave a great intro. Yeah. Wish yeah. I know that that was I mean, the I, clip. I, I have to say something about a couple things about that that scene. One is, um, it's a this is a film about two boys who are very artistic. One is a is a painter, a drawer, and the other is um, an actor, and they both want to go to LaGuardia High School for performing arts right over there. And the question is, who's going to get in and who isn't? And and it was important for me in the film that we see that these kids were good at what, what they wanted to do. And um, that's really one of the things this scene provides is a sense of like, this kid is talented. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I'll tell you two things uh, about this kid. One, after this movie, which premiered at Sundance in January, um, he, he, he personally did get into LaGuardia High School for Performing Arts, so that was a great thing. And two, he um, has been cast both in The Dark Tower with Matthew McConaughey, and he's in Spider-Man, playing Spider-Man's best friend in the new Spider-Man reboot. So this kid is really talented, <laughs> and we're, we're going to see him for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, is that an acting exercise that either of you are familiar with? I'm just curious. Well, I no, I know it, it is, but I only know because I It's not read. an exercise you're familiar with. <laughs> Let's do a give or take. I read, I just read a really good, I just read Larry Moss's book um, on acting, and he talks about it in his, so yes, it is. Apparently, it's a very famous one. Yeah. It's Meisner, um, and actually, uh, this is shot at the Lee Strasberg Institute, which is Method, and so Meisner and Method are, are enemies, so I had the you know, I was kind of infiltrating one, but, but the teacher who does not teach Meisner was perfectly happy to do so in this scene. Now, Michael's phenomenal in this film, but um, so is uh, Theo Tap- Taplitz. Yeah. Um, he's equally as astonishing in the movie. How did you find these two? Were, the, were they known commodities before you came calling? Or? Well, this is their first. No, they're not. They're, they're, they were 12 years old. <laughs> so uh, they, um, Theo, I work with a wonderful casting agent, A.V. Kaufman, who was kind of like a kid whisperer in, in movies. She did The Sixth Sense, and she did Being with Bob- Bobby Fischer, Life of Pi, The Ice Storm kids in all of those movies um, and she uh, through a, uh, an audition in uh, Los Angeles Theo came to us he's a kid who grew up in Los Angeles his parents are actually in the film business and as soon as I saw him really in the tape that I saw it felt like he was in a documentary about the kid in our movie it was very strange it was so authentic from the very first moment and I cast him pretty much immediately Michael came through an open call here in New York, um, we put up some signs around town, including at the Lee Strasberg Institute, and he, his father saw it and brought him in. And, um, and he was such an original kid mm-hmm. um, with this incredible energy. Um, I thought that they would work very well together. In my mind, one of them is Theo, who's the more quiet, reserved character, is like a kid out of a Robert Brisson movie. He's very, very still, and you try to figure out how do you work with what's coming out from him? Michael's straight Scorsese. You're just like, he's like you Joe Pesci at 12. And you're like, put him in a room and let him go wild, and, and he's going to show you something. Now, Greg, you play an actor in the film, albeit one who's a little less successful than yourself. Have you ever played an actor before on screen? Uh, Nurse Betty. Nurse I Betty. I love yeah, Nurse soap Betty. Soap star. Yeah, soap star. What was it like to, to play someone who, you know, has your profession struggling a little more than you to, to play? I don't know. Well, he, he's, uh, yeah, he's uh, going through, uh, I, it's un, it was always, um, 
a, a, a little unclear whether or not he's he's always been going through a, a difficult time or whether he's had I always assumed he's just had his ebbs and flows and yeah. you know he's just not in a great place at this point he's trying to get some theater stuff happening but uh, um, yeah I don't know I, I, I think that you know that's very relatable to any actor just the insecurity of that profession and the you know the, the no matter where you're at on the spectrum there always is some sense of insecurity about it and and what and and some of that insecurity is really nicely tapped into in this movie in really you know beautiful ways um just kind of his uh his struggle and how it's affecting him and how it's affecting his relationship with his own son mm -hmm. because I, I i do think he's a good father and he, he ultimately I, I think that's you know that that's the gold standard for him is yeah. to be a good a good father but um, but he's you know he has other wants and needs like everybody else, um, but there was a lot of different and, and he has to be a landlord so there was a lot of different things happening it was a really fun character to play. Yeah. Did playing him in some way force yourself to see your success in a different light? Uh, well, I don't know. I I guess no. I mean, I I, I, I we're all battling the same our own battles of, of whatever it is we're doing so I I, I didn't really uh, I, I don't know that it really changed my own perception on acting or or my own thing but I uh, now that you've mentioned it maybe I'll give it some thought <laughs> we're obviously missing Paulina Garcia who's so who's so great in the movie um, many of you probably saw her in Gloria a wonderful Chilean actress um, how did you come to know her? Was it through that film? Yeah, uh, Mauricio Zacharias, my co-writer, and I, we saw Gloria, and when we were working on the film, we just had her in mind as someone we would like to cast. Uh, she was so brilliant in that film. And then she happily liked the script and responded to it after we had written it for her. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's she- her first English language her first, film? Uh, yeah, it's her first English language film, first time she'd made a film in America. Um, and she's a wonderfully, she's a fascinating actress. She's a wonderful person, but, but also she is just really, um, she is the person in this film that begins in a very open style. You're not, you're learning to know these characters. She's, and their world, she's the one who somehow lets you know something's wrong. And you don't know for a while what it is, but I think she's able to sort of trigger that, that uncomfortableness that, begins to enter and intrude into the ease of, of these characters' lives. Yeah. You take a really humanistic approach to this, um, this story. You really don't take sides in the script. Um, I found myself constantly wavering between the families in terms of who I wanted to have, uh, who I wanted the house to go to. Um, reading the script, did, did, did that aspect of it really appeal to you? And making it, did you find yourselves taking sides given that you had to play this family? Well, no, I, no, I, no, I, you, I, I don't, I, every time I want to take a, I, I find it impossible to take a side because I think you, you don't take a side and it's really all, I mean, you're so forgiving and compassionate to everybody, but not, but without sentimentality. I don't know how you do that, but it's really, it's really good. <laughs> I want her to move out. <laughs> <laughs> I want her to get her out. Um, you know, I, I, uh. It's true. It, it, it really does. Uh, it leaves. It's a real dichotomy. It, le it leaves everybody in the balance. And 
there's no heroes in this mm -hmm. in, in kind of a great way, other than the boys in a way. I think they're yeah. protected in a way. Uh, they are the heroes in a way, right? Because they stay steady. Well, I think, you know, whenever you're, you're making a film, even if it's a art film or an artful film, you're, you're, you're make, I try to think of suspense. Mm -hmm. And I think in this film, the suspense is what's going to happen to these people and who's going who's gonna to get to stay and who's going to have to leave. But also there's a moral suspense in terms of, of who to identify with and how does that shift. And, and we began creating that very early in the script because we, we knew it was going to be a, a crisis around rent and, and, and a landlord and a tenant. But we decided that the landlord wasn't going to be too rich and was also going to be work, struggling with money. And the tenant was not going to be, uh, was going to be also from the middle class, a well-educated person, not a recent immigrant, someone who'd been here for a while. And that meant that there was a, there was a gray area um, that was, was constant. And I it think- It gets very claustrophobic. Yeah, I mean, I think there's just, there's, there's really just, someone's gonna have to give and we don't know who that is. Um, and the film begins to narrow and the doors begin to shut, really for having a certain uh, resolution. Yeah. We have one more clip to show. I think I know which one this is. It's a scene between Greg and his son and it gets a little heated. <laughs> Did you guys all hug it out after that scene? Yeah. I, I do remember when we were shooting that scene that there was just one point because it, it, you know, this isn't a film of, of fireworks, and there was a one point where you, you kind of let it out, and I was really happy because <laughs> I, I I I thought it, the film needs these moments. It needs these moments when you're really sh you're you're uns you're surprisingly shaken by something that someone does. So I was glad you allowed that because in a way it's risky. Were the kids affected? They haven't spoken. So they haven't spoken to you since. <laughs> the, the the look on Theo, Theo's face yeah, is, says is, it all. Says it all. Is real. All right, so we're going to open it up to audience questions. If you have a question, please just raise your hand, and someone with a mic will be coming around to you. Please. Wait to see the film. I mean, it looks amazing, but um, you mentioned TV, and I wondered if that's something you could um, talk about what you're working on. Some big stuff in the works. Uh, yeah, I'm working on a um, another New York story, which is about the actor Montgomery Clift, um, a, a, a biographical film for HBO to star Matt Bomer, um, the actor Matt Bomer, which I've been working on with Mauricio, my co-writer, um, for uh, a little over a year. And I have to say, we um, did all the research for the film in the in Lincoln Center at the New York Public Library, where Montgomery's archive uh, are, as well as the archive of, of his biographer. So I spent a lot of time at that cafe, about three months I was, in, I was doing the research. And it's a, it's a film about New York in a different time, um, from the 30s until through mid 60s. Um, and it's about a, a man who was trying to figure out who he was in, in, a, in a difficult uh, time where he wasn't sure how to be a man and he wasn't exactly sure how to be sensitive in the way that he felt was necessary and there was a lot of vulnerability in that character. So that's what I'm working on. 
I think that's a wrap. <laughs> Thank you so much, everyone. And the film comes out next Friday at the Film Society Lincoln Center. The 54th New York Film Festival runs September 30th through October 16th and brings the best new cinema from around the world to the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Tickets go on sale to the general public on September 11th. Film Society members at the film buff level or higher receive early access. To become a member, visit filmlink.org membership. VIP passes and subscription packages for the festival are now on sale and offer even earlier access to purchase tickets and secure seats at some of the festival's biggest events, including opening night, centerpiece, and closing night. To find out more, visit filmlink.org NYFF. English director Paul Greengrass is known for his distinctive approach to the action thriller genre. He found widespread critical and commercial success with films like The Bourne Supremacy and The Bourne Ultimatum, and he received an Oscar nomination in 2006 for his drama United 93. The fifth installment of the Bourne series, titled Jason Bourne, is now playing in theaters. Greengrass's 2013 film, Captain Phillips, which stars Tom Hanks and is based on the 2009 Merce, Alabama hijacking, had its world premiere at the 51st New York Film Festival in 2013. During the festival, the director joined Kent Jones for one of our HBO Director's Dialogues. Let's go to that now. Well, I wanted to start talking about, you know, last night when you introduced the film... Uh, the romantic comedy that I'm doing next. <laughs> Step Brothers 2. Internship 2. Yeah. <laughs> Two of my favorite movies of the year. <laughs> this is a true story. My son is 15. When I... Because I, I, I had to wear a suit, you know. So I tried it on. I, I almost never wear a suit. I didn't even wear a suit when I got married. He said, this is absolutely true, he said, you know what, you wearing a suit, Dad, is funnier than Step Brothers. <laughs> it's a true story. Um, yeah, we can start off with the romantic comedy angle. What do you think it'll be like working with Kieran Knightley? Be great. That's a joke. I'm so, looking forward to it. Okay. I Just love waiting her. I she's really good. She is excellent, but yes. Um, no, she is. So... Last night when you introduced um, the film, you referred to the, the days when you were in New York and you were working with a theater director, or studying with a theater director, someone... No, no, I wasn't studying. Um, okay. He, he, he uh, uh, I went to school with his son, and uh, when I left school, I was, I'd have been about 18, not even, it's just about 18. And uh, it was the days of Laker Airlines. I don't know if you remember that. It was the first low-cost airlines. Freddie and it Laker. had a very, very big impact on people of my generation because it was the first time that Brits had been able to come to America, you know, because it was cheap. Uh, and he, you know, nowadays we have Virgin Airlines, but in those days it was unheard of. You could fly to New York for 59 pounds. That's like $75 or something. Occasionally it felt like the engines might fall off, but that's a different story. <laughs> um, but it, it, it opened up America for people of my generation. And uh, I came to stay with Carmen Capalbo, who was a, a brilliant theatre director, now sadly 
died not so long ago. Um, but a great, great man and a great New Yorker, and he he really was instrumental in creating the off-Broadway movement. He he opened the Three Penny Opera in the 50s off in a theatre off-Broadway and turned it into a hit. That was unheard of, never happened before. And uh, I was 18, and in those days when you were 18, you were a lot younger, I think, than 18-year-olds are today. Yep. And he lived in a rather beautiful apartment on East 11th Street. And I just remember it. You know, I stayed there three, well, pretty much every summer I used to come here from college. And it was like entering a world that, of unimaginable excitement, you know. He'd be thinking of directing this play or that play and there'd be writers and directors and producers and they all used to go off to Elaine's. Do you remember? Is that still going, Elaine's? Yeah, yeah. shut down a couple of years. Yeah, I can remember him taking me to Elaine's. I thought that was about as exciting an evening as I'd ever had. Well, he used to play poker. All these men, you know, playing poker. And, uh, and they talked about books and they talked about, uh, you know, great American writing, you know and Eugene O'Neill, and Nelson Algren. I can remember Carmen reading me, Walk on the Wild Side. You had, had a most beautiful spoken voice. He always used to say, speak up, speak up, speak up, speak up, goddammit, speak up. Because <laughs> all British people mumble. And, uh, uh, and I hero-worshipped him. I really did. I, I, I hero-worshipped him and that sense that you made your life your own and you enjoyed great successes and also less than successes, but in the end you greeted the world each day with, with what was possible. And, and it seemed unimaginably romantic. And, and he used to say to me, you've got to go for it. You've, if you've got the dream, go for it. You know, he, he was a great believer in that. And uh, I've never forgotten those days. And... You know, I used to see Carmen right up to the end. He was a great, great man and a great New Yorker and a, a most one. I mean, he taught me everything that I know about this city. I mean, it's what, such little that I do came. And you, you referred a couple of times last night to the East Village. You spent a lot of time there. It was a very yeah. different place back then. It was. What I remember was the Strand Bookstore. Yeah. Um, Bear in mind, it, you know, today when you come to London, enough, my wife and I were out walking yesterday, we were saying New York now doesn't seem that far away from London. Yeah. It's, you know, you, you, a lot of the same experiences now. But in those days, it was different. Yeah. You know, to go to the Strand bookstore was just the most exciting thing. Mm. You know, and to look for poetry and old Nelson Algren novels. And, uh, and I remember the record stores in the East Village where you used to buy bootlegs. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Every single Hendrix album you could possibly imagine. Every <laughs> single Hendrix performance would be there. You know, I must have bought them all, I think, yeah. by the time I'd finished college. Most of them were unlistenable too, but I thought they were just great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they were happy, happy days. And also, 
pedestrian days, that was the other thing. You know, you walked everywhere, mm -hmm. you know. But it gave me, and I was also obsessed with photography at the time. I took photographs all over the city. Um, I loved it. It was, it was, it was, had a powerful effect on me. It had a very, very powerful effect on me. So what was the, the pathway from there to making your first movie? Um, it's funny, it's something that I've thought about a lot recently. Why, why do directors end up directing, you know? It's sort of funny, isn't it? Because it's, it's a weird job. Nobody, I think, in the entire history of directing has ever had somebody ever come up to them and go, you look like a really good director. I'm going to hire you. It never, ever happens. <laughs> so that you start with that. It's a self-selecting job. So you have to be either unutterably vain or, or entirely mad, and probably both. Um, you know, you have to have that desire to do it. So where does it come from? Well, I think that childish, ex profound childish experiences of cinema, I think, are a, a common factor. I don't, and you know, then you have to delve deeply into why your imagination is so moved to want to repeat those. But I can remember. Very, very distinctly, you know, I was a, I grew up sort of an hour out of London in, in a, you know, pretty grotty sort of part. Not, not a horrendously grotty, but it was a, was a windy, vacant, estuary town about an hour from London. And people didn't become directors from Gravesend, believe me. Um, if you want to know, Gravesend is where um, is where Oliver Twist is set. Oliver Twist starts on the marshes. Great Expectations starts on the marshes. That's where I spent my early childhood. Um, but I do remember being taken to movies and going to movies. I can remember Saturday matinees. And in particular, I remember my dad, who was at sea, uh, one way or another, all his working life. Um, so he was quite remote, you know, because he was away a lot, certainly when I was, you know, very young. Um, but he had one thing that was very important, I think. He... He was self-educated, he'd left school at 14, but he had a belief that, that no matter what the piece was of, of art, if you like, that you should experience it no matter what the age. He didn't have a sense that you were too young to experience things. And what that meant was that I can remember... Uh, utterly, utterly vividly being taken to see Hamlet and I would have been about eight. And it was a very, very famous Hamlet. It was uh, David Warner's Hamlet, uh, Peter Hall's Hamlet uh, when he was running the Royal Shakespeare Company in London at the Old Vic. And it was, uh, 
it was a really raw, blood-soaked Hamlet and a story of revenge. And, and I remember it as the, one of the most compelling sort of experiences of my life. Dramatic, utterly moving, utterly enthralling, utterly violent. I can remember him taking me to see Zhivago, Lawrence of Arabia and Zhivago, and I can remember that we didn't watch it in the home in our hometown cinema, which would have been a bit of a flea pit. We went up to the Empire Leicester Square in the centre of London, which would have been very, very extraordinary event for us as a family to do that. And I can remember where we sat. I can remember in Chivago, we sat down the left-hand side of this huge screen right down near the front. And I'd have been incredibly young. And I remember so vividly the, the Cossack, you know, Lean's Cossack charge when the Cossacks break up the march, you know, that fantastic scene. And Strelnikov's at the front of the march and Chivago's up on the balcony and, you know, the Cossacks in the snow lining up and the, the march with the band coming around the corner and this collision and, and the flashing swords and the thunder of the hooves and the blood and the, just the, and the, and the, the sense of outrage that you felt as an audience and the shock and the horror and the, and, and the way that you went to Zhivago's character and you knew that it was gonna impel him to live his life in the shadow of these events. And later, many, many years later, I made a film about a march, Bloody Sunday. Somewhere, those cinematic, and that was just one, those, those cinematic experiences that mainline into your sort of cortex somewhere, I think are very, very important. Then I think it's to do with, and now I'm talking then, that's different now, the luck of being able to find access at an early age to moving cameras. Um, I, I, at our school art room, they happened to have an old, like a little Bolex camera thing. And I pestered the art teacher to get some film for it, and that was the first film I ever made. And. Uh, that would have been quite unusual, you know, that you could find something like that. And I remember the thrill of seeing moving images for the first time projected on the wall in the, in the art room and thinking, oh, I like this. This is exciting. Um, I know, then, then being able to go out to work, work at Granada and World in Action, and that was a very, very austere training ground and you were taught in the shadow of the great John Grierson the documentary realist tradition and that that was the great golden thread that ran through British filmmaking and you were taught to watch those films and Nanook of the North and Humphrey Jennings and The Night Train and you know and onwards and onwards and and um, so being trained in a tradition I think is very important. In very in rare now. Yeah. Huh? Rare now I think. Rare but it's different now you see because um, moving images are, are it's, it, the process is entirely democratized and that's really really important and I think that one of the things that I find interesting is that I you know before I came to this country to make films 
you know, worked mainly in television in Britain. And, you know, I had tremendous, I was very lucky. I had, you know, complete sort of freedom to do what I want as long as I made them for about $4.35. Um, but, you know, but I made them and, and I was supported to make them, you know, and that was wonderful. And I had no real particular aspirations to work here. It wasn't really part of my... I never thought anybody would have any interest in... You know, I was interested in sort of doing what I was doing. When I came here after I made Bloody Sunday, I... May, I decided to make a commercial film because I thought if I'm going to come to America and make a film, there's no point making a film like I could make in Britain. I wanted the fun of the fairground ride, you know, and the popcorn uh, ride. And also, I was quite enjoying the fact that in the first time in my life, I'd actually be paid some money, you know, <laughs> which was not something really that ever happened in Britain. Um, where directors are, you know, really abominably treated, but that's a different story. Um, so I wanted, and I was excited about the idea of making a commercial thriller. I'd never tried to do that. And I, I had very much enjoyed Doug Lyman's Bourne Identity. And, you know, a lot of people talk about the contribution I made to the Bourne franchise. Doug Lyman was the man who really had the vision to see what that Bourne franchise was about, and he created the character, you know. But I thought there were things I could do with it, and um, so we went off to make Bourne Supremacy, and I had a particular view, I think, about what an image was cinematically. It was, uh, you know, very fluid, very kinetic, very raw, very rough, and handheld, and that came, I had developed that over time um, because it was where I started shooting, and it was the tradition that I was taught in, and I had operated thus far, I think, in what I considered to be quite a classical sort of British documentary realist tradition. Nobody really in Britain was using Zooms in the way that I was doing it, but I, f I felt quite old-fashioned, and I was quite comfortable in that. The weird thing was when I set out to make Supremacy and I started to, you know, shoot in that same way, but, but in the vernacular of car chases and whatever it was, uh, it suddenly looked quite risque in a commercial context and, and sort of fresh and new. So I, I sort of went from being old-fashioned to being new kid on the block in about five minutes. And the funny thing was, it was when we were shooting the car chase that I first saw people with mobile phones recording. And of course, that's when I realized that the, the sort of cinematic audience were used in their own lives to seeing images that, you know, would, would move in the wrist and be much more, um, you know, uh, much looser and rawer than anything that they were getting in mainstream cinema. And so when I started to give them what I consider to be quite old-fashioned images, they looked new to, to them. And I think that's kind of the interesting part of that collision, you know. Well, that's interesting because it, it, it dovetails with another point that I think uh, is, is really worth making. Last night, um, another film that you referred to when you introduced um, Captain Phillips' Battle of Algiers by Gila Pantacorvo 
and um, you know David Lean and uh, Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Shivago aside, your your films in general have more of a a link, I suppose, to what Ponte Corvo was doing in Battle of Algiers, and I suppose that the word that it really evokes for me is immediacy. And uh, yesterday during the press conference, the word environmental came up a lot. Um, you brought it up and so did Tom Hanks, and I think particularly in relation to the how that last scene in Captain Phillips came about. I would imagine that working the way that you do the environment becomes everything, and that you, you know, uh, that there are many um, instances that are like that. Actually, maybe you could tell the audience about that, uh, how that scene came about. In, in Phillips? Yeah. Well, it's always been important to me to try and shoot in real places, you know. Um, I mean, I've shot plenty in studios and enjoyed it. Um, it's good for your parking in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's never quite the same, I think, as the the sort of excitement you get from being in a in a location. Um, and things occur to you in locations. So, in this film, Captain Phillips, it was important. You know, the the sort of proposition going into it was that. You know, films on water, that's director's worst nightmare. And I, but I sort of felt that, on the contrary, it was the biggest opportunity with this film, which although it you know, looks quite a substantial film, actually was, was not a particularly expensive... Well, no, it was a distinctly inexpensive film for what it was. And we were operating within those constraints. But I felt that if we could get the right ships, which principally meant a container ship and a a US Navy ship, ships, and the skiffs and the lifeboat, that we'd have enough to make our film. And, and, and you know, it, very often when you're working with, you know, and this is true whether you're working on a tremendously low budget film or whatever, in the end you have to make judgments about where to put your resources. You know, you've got to say, well, and, and, and so often with filmmaking it's about making strong choices, strong committed choices. We'll go for this, but it will mean we won't be able to go for that. And I felt if we could do that, we would have the freedom to explore uh, the sort of authenticity of the experience. And it was true. It, 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 it gave the film that it's sort of claustrophobia because even though some of those ships were big actually they're incredibly claustrophobic and uh, it created the compression and the drama that, that, that really drives the story I think. But in the case of the last scene in the film you actually created the scene um, after well, encountering the infirmary for the first time right? Yes and no. I mean, I can tell you how that went. Um, it was always clear to to us, I think, that that somewhere you needed emotional catharsis, you know. And Tom and I had talked about, you know, there would be a moment where you would break after that experience, and. We'd actually tried to shoot that scene earlier in the day in the captain's cabin. The, the scene was about him being taken 
uh, and we shot that scene. He, he, it was sort of after he'd been cleaned up. He was all, um, you know, dressed in back in a in a sort of uniform of sorts, and he's taken up to the captain, Castellano's cabin, and he's sitting alone, and he'd maybe be seeing kind of pictures on the TV of his homecoming and so on and so forth, or you know the the yeah the rescue and so forth. And he'd get a beer out the fridge and, you know, the, the sort of experience of being back in a normal world would somewhere create catharsis. And we shot that all day, really, you know, various different ways, you know, the walk in and, you know, people sort of, you know, a short scene with an orderly saying, you know, here's the thing and the beer's in the fridge and the, it's how you work the TV and, you know, the stuff. You're trying to sort of create a, a texture of, you know, sort of, of detail that can get you to somewhere. And Tom played it and it was fine, but both of us knew it wasn't it. I w it's like pebbles in a bucket, you know what I mean? They're rattling in the bucket, but it's not turning into anything. It's not, it's not real. It's not authentic. It's not truthful. And you're in that place which you can get to very often in films where it's not right. It's okay, it's perfectly good, but you don't even have to say to each other. You just know, each of you, that it's not, it's not, it, it's not what you really need. And you run out of ways, you know, when you're directing, you're trying to sort of think, well, is there another way we can come at this? Well, what about if we do it this way? What about if we do it that way? What about if you do less? What about if you do more? You know, you're, you're, you're trying to find, it's, it's, like, it's like looking at a door or a rock face and you, you know that there's a key to unlock it, there's something the other side, but how do you find it? And sometimes you don't. And uh, I was talking to, I think, the captain or the XO, the number two, perhaps it was the XO. Very nice man, very, very, what you'd expect a naval officer to be. Very thoughtful man. And he said, I said, well, just run through if in that experience, from when he's taken off the boat, where would he actually go? Because we're picking him up now. Some hour or two he's already had a shower he's already dressed you know he said well the first place he'd be taken is the medical bay to be checked out by now it was about half past five and we we had very we couldn't go late on those ships for all sorts of operational reasons so we had just that hour and a half or whatever and uh he said well he'd go down to the medical bay so i thought oh bollocks we'll have to just try that you know it's like it's the last roll of the dice Okay, so let's go down. That's not an easy thing, by the way, moving around one of those ships. Let's, let's just get the gear quickly. We'll go in there. Is there a medic? Yes. There'll be a medical team because they're on duty now. Okay, is it all right if we go in there and we'll shoot and we'll be one out and then we'll be out of your hair? Fine, okay. Talk to Tom. Let's go and give it a go. Get your change back into, you know, because he obviously had to then be changed and blooded up and put back in costume change. You know, so you're running against the clock. Well, in a funny way, and I found this quite often, if you can create 
a desperate urgency on a film set that's real. In other words, you're running out of time. We cannot come back to this. Uh, you know, we're done. That's it. Um, my God, we've got to do this costume change down. It's a makeup change, and that's going to be a minimum 15, 16 minutes. And we've got to move the gear, and we've got to set up, and we don't know who these people are down there, and we haven't even rehearsed the scene. Excuse me, what is this scene? You know, and so everybody <laughs> inhabits a kind of a frenzy of chaos. It can be a good thing, because what happens is everybody starts to stop inhabiting a real world and starts to inhabit the world of sheer terror. In a good way. <laughs> and, and something happens. And we got down there. This is absolutely a true story. We got down there and, uh, you know, and Tom, this is, well, this is where great actors are great when they're both great actors but also entirely up for it. You go, okay, we're going to just give it a go. We'll see. Okay, you're just going to be... I'm going to, there's two guards here. They're going to walk you down this corridor. You're going to go in there. There's a medical team. I don't want you to meet them. They'll just take it. I've talked to them. They're going to just take you in as, a, as if this was a military exercise and you'd just come off the... You know, exactly there. They're on, they're, this is an anti-piracy patrol ship. This has just happened and they'll take it from there. You've got the wounds on. You're dressed for, for, with the blood and so on and so forth. They'll take it from there. Uh, Barry Aykroyd was with me. I said, okay, what we'll do is we'll go in over the shoulder and we'll crab to the left. It's a very tiny space. We'll go round to the... We've got to go left-hand ways anyway because otherwise we'll, we'll hit the light and, uh, and uh, we'll just go for it. Okay, right, go. Everybody's going... Uh, 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 uh. And, uh, you know, guy with video village. Guy, oh, where, where are we set up? Don't have time for that. Okay. <laughs> And, and you go, and Tom went through the door, and uh, the corm, uh, the corman called woman, um, she said, excuse me, what, what have I got to do? I said, okay, well, Tom Hanks is going to come through that door, and he's going to be covered in blood. <laughs> Doesn't matter, don't worry about it, just, he's going to come through the door, and he, okay, okay, really, really, is, is the XR okay with this? Yeah, that's fine, yeah, okay. She immediately starts to tremble <laughs> like this. Okay. By now I'm going, this is going to be a disaster. It's never, ever going to work. And, uh, and Chris Carreras, my first AD, is going, we've got 33 minutes, okay? And then absolutely that's it. Okay. Roll. We go. He, he walks in, Tom. She goes, uh, uh, Captain Phillips, uh, 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 are you, uh, are you, uh, 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 she dries immediately because she suddenly realises it's Tom Hanks. So she's going, <laughs> literally, it's true, it's absolutely true. She goes, uh, 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 meanwhile, Barry, who's crab round to the left per my instruction, has now fallen over. And <laughs> so the entire thing is a clusterfuck of epic proportions, you see. <laughs> and Tom's sitting there going, is anybody going to start doing anything here? <laughs> but, but in that moment when he came through the door, just before she dried, there was something about how she looked at him, and I could see it very clearly that it had landed with him.
So we quickly reset, pulled out. Um, we had to freshly dress uh, the blood on, on Tom, wipe him down and dress. So I went around the corner with him and I said, did, did you feel that? Something happened in there? He said, no, no, definitely. He said, definitely, definitely. I, I, felt, I felt different because I was going into that very antiseptic, tiny space and these people were being procedural. It all felt procedural because they were putting things on my fingers and even though she dried, it just felt there was something there. And that's when you see the truth about great acting because great acting is not really about lines. It is sometimes. It's really about having the courage to identify when a door towards truth is just a little bit open. There is something there. And acting is about feeling the truth, feeling where the truth lies in a scene, feeling where the truth lies in a moment, and then having the courage to hunt it down. And uh, so I knew then that he'd seen what I'd seen. And of course, it was because he'd felt it. You know, it was, it was, there was something in there to be had. And I could see in his eyes that he was going to go for it. You know, it was like a... And that's the will toward truth that great actors have when it's real. And then I was about just settling her down and getting her... You know, listen, this is just an exercise. Forget us. Forget it's him. I just want you to be in a military exercise. You've done many of them. And this is a casualty coming in. And then we shot the scene again... And I think we did actually three or possibly four takes, not very many. Yeah. And fundamentally, it was just two and three, the first one being the bust. Mm -hmm. And you felt as soon as he walked through the door, she clicked into being entirely as procedural. Mm -hmm. And somewhere I could just see him break because, because it was truthful. Because suddenly after all those hours of being manhandled and guns putting in his face... There was this person who was just trying to fix him up, but she wasn't sentimentalizing. It was entirely She's procedural. Doing job. Yeah, and it, yep. and that's where the truth lay. And then you get that extraordinary uh, vulnerability, humanity that that Tom Hanks can find, and that's why he is a great actor. But then to to. Uh take the whole environmental question a little further. I know that uh, on the flip side was the experience of shooting inside the, the lifeboat. Um, the sick created boat. A different kind of, yeah, the sick boat. <laughs> yeah. Created a different kind of problem, right? Yes, I remember we started shooting. The first day uh, we started shooting properly in the lifeboat. We'd been in it a few times so I wanted everybody to acclimatize. I'm actually quite lucky. I don't, my father was at sea of his life, so, and not that I went with him very much, but I don't really get seasick, luckily. It's just a thing you either, something to do with your inner ear, you either do or you don't. Anyway, we, this was the first um, uh, day that we really were shooting in the lifeboat for real, out on the ocean, and that thing, it pitches, it you know, yaws, it turns through every access, it's, it thumps down, so there's a lot of this as well. 
and uh, and it's low. The windows are up here. You're sitting down on the f seats are here. You're cramped in like that. It stinks of of diesel. It's a it's a brutal craft. So we started the scene. I can't even remember what the scene was. They were all in there. Obviously, on that occasion, I was on a little camera boat next door because we couldn't. We had two cameras and we were shooting across, so there was nowhere really for me to sit in there. Um, but I had a walkie in there to, to um, Chris, my first. Anyway, we started shooting and the scene wasn't going very well. And there was a long pause and then... I had a radio message. Um, the focus puller's a bit seasick. So I said, okay, just keep effing shooting, will you? Okay. Pause. Scene doesn't go very well. Um, the focus puller's just been sick all over Tom. <laughs> just keep shooting, will you? <laughs> See, um, Barry's now been sick too. <laughs> a camera's down. Okay, just keep shooting. Uh, sorry. Correction. B camera down too. He's sick too. <laughs> so it went on until there was literally everybody in there was seasick. And there was poor old Tom, who never got seasick, just sitting there, you know, with people puking their guts out left, right and centre, being casifact out of this thing. And I thought, okay, we've, it's, the good news is we've only got about 56 days of this to go. <laughs> That's absolutely true. We got there. <laughs> um, to, you know, to return to something that you said before, you were saying that the world of moving images and the world of, of movie making is now democratized. And that, so is it fair to say that the way that your approach to making movies has, that, that maybe it changed when you saw um, during that, when you were shooting the car chase, people holding up those cameras, that, you, that, that it brought you to a different place and that your, your films in some way um, become almost mosaics of present tense um, images. Yeah. yeah, I think it challenges me, yeah. to be honest. I, I, I now, you know, do you... If you have a distinctive style, do you accept that? as the authentic expression of yourself? Or do you try and learn some different dances? Mm -hmm. That's a big question. Mm -hmm. I don't think I know the answer to that. I, I, I do sometimes think maybe I should do something different, but it never feels to be truthful to me, you know? Uh, I think that the great, great filmmakers, the greatest filmmakers, can operate in lots of different areas, you know? And I wouldn't put myself in that, you know, in those, because I just think, but I think that I do what I do, you know? And it is authentically me, it comes, uh, you know, I don't, Put it on. I mean, sometimes I see stuff, you know, and it's like they're waving the camera around, particularly on television, and you go, well, but what's the point of that? It's just sort of jump, some generalized sort of 
thing that says immediacy, but it's really not. It's not. It's not. It's not rooted in physically where you are or why it would be shot in that way. Or I mean, you know, the truth is, you couldn't have shot this film in any other way than this, unless we'd said, "Well, we're not really on the ocean. We're on a stage, and we'll break that craft in half, and then we'll put dollies in." And yeah, you know, that would be a different experience. Um, a movie from a different era. Also. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 in the end. I think that I'm probably, from being uh, working within a classical tradition in Britain, if you know what I mean, and then this phase where it became sort of more cinematically modern in the commercial mainstream, and I suspect I'll probably transition back to being quite old-fashionedly me, and that'll be quite cool. Um, but. Uh, I don't know it's it's hard. It, definitely having an, a a sort of distinctive style is a is a can be a straitjacket for yourself. Not least because I remember uh, some years ago after I can't remember after I'd done the Bourne movies, somebody was saying, uh, "Oh, there was some guy from I can't remember which studio it was come into town. This is in London. Uh, I was having lunch with a friend of mine who was, who was an an agent in London. He said, "Yeah, this." guy from a studio was coming in town. Apparently he was looking for the new Paul Greengrass. I said, hang on a second, the old one's still here and available. <laughs> anyway. Um, take a couple questions from the audience. If any, yes. Um, oh, somebody's like a bringing a mic so that the whole audience can hear. There you go. Um, since you've popularized the shaky cam style in mainstream cinema, it's really hard to remember just how groundbreaking it was at the time. So I was wondering, how did you initially convince the studio on Born Supremacy to let you work in this shaky cam, very loose, improvisational, non-storyboard style? And what were their initial impressions before it worked? Um, well, I think they were, uh, well, I think two things. I think they were, they hired me and I, you know, the films that I'd made before that, you know, Bloody Sunday being one, were pretty clear, you know, how it looked. Um, but I still remember them sitting down. We were shooting in Berlin, the first sort of early rushes session. I'm not a great one for watching my rushes, incidentally. It's, it's not something I tend to dwell on, only because I'm always intent on driving forward. I'm, I'm very, very interested in material cut quickly because that tells me something much more important than I can learn from rushes, you know. I'll watch rushes if I think there's something wrong or if I think I haven't covered something properly, I'll check. But joining my first big movie, there was the tradition of rushes being screened at such and such a time. And I remember the first <laughs> of rushes hearing people behind me, people in authority whose names I won't mention, going, what the fuck, what, what the fuck, what, why the f why does he have to do that? <laughs> but look at Jesus. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, they were very good to me as well. You know, they really were. They were good to me because the odd thing about Hollywood, in my experience, is that they, 
They want you to know what you're doing. They don't... The idea that they sit around trying to find ways of interfering with directors' work is... I, I, in my experience, and now I'm not exactly the new kid on the block anymore, so wide of the mark. On the contrary, they want you to come in with a strong point of view. They want you to say, here's how I do it, I do it like this. And you're accountable for that, of course, but they want, you know, they want to know what you want to do. And they did. I mean, there was a, on that first film, there was a certain amount of, I used to sort of have to shoot the scene like a grown-up director. And then, you know, I'll do the little dolly and then the two shot down to the teacup, you know, all that stuff. Which I did. I learned how to, you know, I can do that. Easy. Not a problem. Um, and then we'd chip on out and in the last couple of hours we'd shoot it properly or how I would like it shoot it. So there was a certain amount of that. Right up actually till the end, I remember the reshoots being told, we still, we want, we don't want all that shaky cam. You can do it, but we want it done the other way too. But once they realised it worked, they were, they were great. They were fine with me. But they didn't know, you see, whether audiences would tolerate it. That was the point. That was what nobody knew, really. Would a, would a wide, mainstream audience, movie-going audience, you know, which would be younger... Would they accept it? And it was when that film started to, you know, work that they realised, that's what I'm saying, that, that, that the, their movie audiences were much more conversant with those images yes, than they knew. That's what I mean. That, that was the real thing. And now that's, now it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Um, yeah, um, Mr. Greengrass, my, my question is, um, the film Captain Phillips, has it already been shown to Somali diaspora in the US, Canada, or maybe Kenya? And if so, what feedback has been received? And would you also, could you also foresee if the conditions should permit showing it in one day in Mogadishu, Hergesa, or Garoe to see what the Somali community um, thinks about it abroad as well as in, in Somalia? Well, the, the answer to the first part of the question is, I, I think they are planning exactly that, but obviously uh, last night's the first time the film's ever been shown, so I think that, that process is ongoing. I can't tell you off the top of my head exactly when it's going to be shown, but yes, and, it, and it, of course it will get an overseas... Uh, life, you know, these days, one of the one of the most wonderful things I think about about um, making a film is that it, you you're now so much more aware of its international, its its global life. You know, um, yeah, it used to be that it was sort of predictable places, but now m movie. Uh, you know, the movie experience, the cinema travels globally and deeply globally, you know, all around the world in many, many, many territories and you do get that feedback and I, I'm really looking forward to to seeing that and, I, and it, it has always seemed to me in this film, though we'll live to see whether, you know, that, that by casting young Somalis to play those parts and to render this story with, with you know, a reasonable degree of authenticity, 
gives it a, 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 an ability to be seen much more broadly internationally, you know, because it doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, uh, limited in one perspective. It's a, it's, a, it's a global story, I think, this story. Many, many countries are affected by piracy, and, you know, uh, the issues that it raises... You know, this is a sort of simple, dramatic story, but the issues that, that it sort of illuminates are are global. You know, so I hope it will do. As to whether it will be shown in Mogadishu, I hope so. I hope so. I can find out for you. I'd, I I'd, I would really hope so. You know, it's a it's a, it's a very very vibrant place. We know Somalia, of course. Uh, you know, for its fragmentation and its, you know, its poverty and its warlordism and the civil war and all the problems of, you know, piracy on the one hand and Al Shabab on the other. You know, it's a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a case study in a failed state. You know, um, but in the end, you know, Somali people are resilient people, uh, creative people. Tremendous, tremendous um, uh, musical traditions, uh, poetic traditions, uh, you know, Somali writing, Somali culture. Um, you know, we just have to hope that in the end, as a society, it can rebuild itself um, and that these problems of piracy and the rest of it can fade away. That would be my hope, anyway. I guess you um, mentioned casting young Somali actors, and going back to United 93, you sort of used um, sort of unknowns or people who, um, I guess, weren't stars or people who we didn't really know. And with this, obviously, you have one of the biggest movie stars in the world, Tom Hanks. Was it a conscious choice for you then to cast unknown Somali actors because of that? And is that something that you find helpful when dealing with these kinds of stories? Non-actors, right? Yeah, I mean, um, well, it wasn't... The decision to go that way with the Somali actors was not because of Tom. It was, it was driven by the fact that I had decided to make the film with, you know, some, some certain core principles of authenticity in mind, one of which was to shoot it on real vessels and the other of which was to get Somalis to play Somali. Um, so it wasn't related to Tom, it just felt to me like they were fundamental choices you had to make um, and once having made them I didn't see a difference in the sense, you know, I mean obviously you're aware that Tom is a fantastically experienced actor and certainly, you know, I'd be aware of the, would those young actors be able to stand up and go ahead to particularly bark at Abdi who plays Musi, be able to do the business opposite Tom, but but it wasn't cause and effect like that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, in terms of you know chops, as we'd say, you know, has have actors got the chops for it? You you never know. You just have to to believe and hope. And in and I always thought that those guys could do it. And I always absolutely believed that Barkad could do it. And he could. You know, you don't... 
acting is is many many things right many many things it's 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 a, about technique it's about um, you know having uh, being able to access emotional states with tremendous accuracy uh, but it's also about will you know as any actor will know it's about having that will to project to another human being who's acting with your beings with such force and such focus that it projects with tremendous power when you know when photographed and that inner will is inborn you know, it's, a, it's to do with hunger, desire, need. There are things inside that, that only the performing can exercise. And that's what I found with Barkhead. He had that. In, he's an actor. You know, he's a, he's a, you don't fashion a performance with... You can fashion maybe a few moments, but to fashion a performance with a character to to get that degree of complexity in that character without ever sentimentalizing him. So you're clear about his menace and his, his absolute determination to kidnap Phillips and take him back, you know, and to sketch in the forces that operate in his world upon him and to find some sense of humanity in that, you know, dark character without sentimentality across a performance opposite Tom Hanks. That's, that's, that's just acting. That's just brilliant acting. And he's, he's got, he's the real deal, in my view. You know, and I think the evidence is up there. And I certainly, Tom thinks so too, because he, he would know better than I, because he's right there with him, you know. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. But Paul, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.